If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, one way or another, would you find 1 Kings chapter 22? 1 Kings chapter 22, as we continue in our series, Your Questions, God's Answers. So back in 2004, I heard the great Adrian Rogers speak. Unbeknownst to me, he was ill with cancer and his voice was still very powerful, and he admonished us around the Word of God, a sea of pastors, this dying man preaching some of his last words. Uh, I wish I'd had known that, even though I did drink in his word to us. And in the midst of his message, old Golden Throat, that's what the Southern Baptist called him, said this, the days are coming when men will question not the authority of Scripture, but the sufficiency of Scripture. Prediction fulfilled. Like never before, we have people that are claiming Jesus and, not, and, and claiming they know the Bible and they believe in the Bible, they own Bibles and all that stuff, but they don't really believe in the sufficiency of the truth of God. So the question of our day is, is the Word of God really sufficient for our day in this generation. John Ortberg said, people cheer the Bible, they buy the Bible, they give the Bible, they own the Bible, they just don't actually read the Bible. I would add, they don't believe it either. Not all of it anyway. We live in what I call, hence the title of the message, a Christian coffee cup generation. We hug the mug and all those little Cute little promises on the, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Don't throw the mug away. I'm not saying that, okay? But we pick and choose God's promises like a woman at a salad bar, a man with a, rem a TV remote, and a kid at an ice cream shop. We choose our toppings. And when we get nuts instead of sprinkles like we ordered, we send it back. Why do we send it back? Because I didn't order nuts, that's why. And well, whether you've figured it out by now in your life, and like them or not, God sprinkles, no pun intended, nuts into our life. Don't be pointing at anybody, okay? <laughs> by design, he puts the nuts into our lives. And in keeping with his word, Jesus said, in this world you will have what? Trouble, tribulation, but be of good cheer, because I've what? That's the part we don't get. He's overcome the world. In our podcast just the other day with uh, Trevor Mears and our women's director, Lindsay Holen, Lindsay made a powerful comment. She said, too many women want Philippians, but not Romans. The joy of the Lord, but not the sovereignty of God. Boom, shakalaka. And not just women. Some of us, some of you, listen carefully, you're in trouble right now. You're in trouble, and you're hanging on by a fray, by a thread, simply because you've forgotten the first word in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God. Profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture 
and you've forgotten the ninth word, profitable. If you believe that, you don't have to just live off the cute phrases on your coffee cups. The Bible's inspiration should lead to instruction. It's confrontations to confession. It's salvation to sanctification. It's spirit to submission. It's revelations to reverence. And yes, its promises should lead to praise. In a former message from the passage in 2 Timothy, I gave you this outline, and you can just take a picture of it. It'll be up and gone in a moment. But Scripture teaches us what's right, what's not right, how to get right, how to stay right, and how to do what's right. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, and equip for every good work. It is totally sufficient as well as authoritative in our lives. But from the entrance of sin into this world, men have chosen through no faith or lack of faith to disbelieve this. Yes, the Bible's nice, but it's not necessary. We do have psychology. We do have psychologists. We do have all kinds of other additions. We don't need... Really? Then what does 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 mean by this then when it tells us we're complete with it if that's not true? So this is not a... All right, this is not a touchy-feely message. You probably got that figured out already, right? So you're in, set, you're in 1 Kings 22, and this is a little, little history, a little framework here. This is the time of the divided kingdom. The kingdom to the north is, 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 uh, is Israel. The kingdom to the south is Judah. To the north, the north, all the kings were wicked. To the south, all, not all the kings were good. Only eight of them were good, but more good than bad. Uh, the king at the time in the north is Ahab. He is as wicked as they come. His wife is Jezebel. That's all you got to know. The king to the south in Judah is Jehoshaphat. He is a godly, albeit rather naive, king. This is the only time in the divided kingdom era where there was peace between these two warring brotherhoods. And Ramoth Gilead, which is basically the, uh, an entry point to, the, uh, to Israel, all of Israel, Israel and Judah, is just to the east. They basically represent the Syrian empire, nation of Syria. They're the gateway to Israel. And while Ramoth Gilead, the, the city-state itself, was promised to Israel after a, a victory sometime earlier, it hadn't been given to them. And Ahab is concerned that with them so close, and they're just 40 miles from Jerusalem, they're a constant threat. So he brings Jehoshaphat up from the south, and they have a powwow. I hope I didn't do some politically incorrect statement with that. But anyway, 22, chapter 22. Here we go. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of, uh, came down, because when you're in Jerusalem, you're always going down, so don't get stuck with the geography there, okay? Uh, and the king of Israel said to his servants, this is Ahab, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me 
to battle at Ramoth Gilead. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go and battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat, smelling a rat, said, Is there not a, is there not a real prophet of the Lord around here? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, son of Imla, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, oh, don't talk like that. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imla. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, uh, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor, at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, that's to the north, and all the prophets and we're prophesying before them. So get the picture. And by the way, if you've been on one of uh, these tours that I've led three times, and hope a fourth one coming up not too far, there I am standing on the very spot. That's the very spot where this took place. This is the gate of the city of wicked Samaria. All these prophets, there have been plenty of room for them. We've talked about the gates, how roomy they were in the past. We pick it up in verse 11. And Zedekiah the son of Chenanah made for himself horns and uh, horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they're destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And Micaiah answered, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into your hand to the king. This is what you want me to say, isn't it? And the king, knowing the scene, the sarcasm, said, how many times must I make you swear that you'll speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And then he did. Micaiah responds, I saw Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep with no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. In other words, the king is dead. You're dead, just like Elijah had prophesied earlier. And the king of Israel said to Joseph, didn't I tell you you wouldn't say anything good about me but evil? And Micaiah said, he's not done. And look at this intriguing vision. This is one of the most intriguing in all the Old Testament. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on the right hand and on the left, angels and demons. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said, uh, said one thing, another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said, by what means? And he said, I will go out 
and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you go and entice him. You shall succeed and go out and do so. Therefore, Micaiah says, as he looks back to these 400 prophets, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets of yours. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chennai, walked up to Micaiah and smacked him across the face. And Micaiah said, behold, he says, how did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, behold, you shall see on that day when you go into inner chamber uh, and hide yourself like a little chicken. I had another word in my head, but I didn't spit it out. So the king gets mad, says, seize Micaiah, put him in prison, give him bread and water. That's it. But Micaiah has the last word as he's being let out. You look at the 28th verse where he says, Micaiah says, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear this, all you peoples. Powerful stuff here. Wouldn't you agree? So here's what I want to do for the balance of our time from this text. I want to give each of you Five signs that you're in trouble, because some of you are. Five signs that you're in trouble. Here's the first one. When God's word is an afterthought rather than a forethought, you're in trouble. Did you see even the godly King Jehoshaphat? Remember, Ahab says, hey, will you fight with me? Will you, will you bring your armies and fight with me against Ram of Gilead? I'm in. We're in. My army's your army. My horses, your horses. Yeah, baby. Uh, and then he goes, um, but maybe, hey, we should talk to the Lord first. So we got to give him some credit here. And yet it was an afterthought, not a forethought. I marvel how so many Christians, and that means a number of you, do so many things. You make so many huge life decisions and then sort of tack God, God onto it as an afterthought. Or you look for that cup, you know, that will affirm your decision you already made. If that's you, you're in trouble. In fact, you can't say, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Wait for it. Unless it is. Unless it actually is. If seeking the Lord through his word is an afterthought rather than a forethought, you're in trouble. And some of you are already there. Secondly, you're in trouble when God's word incites anger when you're confronted. And you see that here, right? A couple of years ago, we were having a Bible study with a couple. And it was going really relatively well, and suddenly they just went off the radar. Oh, dark 30, couldn't even get a hold of them. They weren't responding, just inexplicably. We continue to pursue them because the Bible study had been going so well, and suddenly out of nowhere, I got a text from the gentleman who wrote this. This was his actual text to me. Your messages make us feel judged rather than encouraged, so we're going to explore other churches, which, of course, my heart sunk, but it didn't make any sense to me. I came to find out that they had friends that had dissuaded them from coming to the church and being these Bible studies, friends, quote-unquote, that we had confronted in their sin just a year earlier. 
Listen, haters of the messenger only reveal where their real hatred resides, in the message itself. I learned this right after becoming a Christian, going to all my friends and sharing the gospel. I was in the house of one of my very best friends, and I was sharing truth, John 14, 6. I think I knew that and maybe two other verses. But I was just sharing truth with them, and I said, hey, can I go out and get my Bible in the car? He goes, no way. Numbers, you get that Bible, and I'll kick you out of the house. And with that, I, I realized it wasn't me he was hating. It was the message I represented. When truth tellers hurt internally, the ungodly lash out externally. That's their only recourse. And you see that with Ahab, you see that with Zedekiah here, the smack, putting him in prison. If your reaction is to hate the one who speaks the truth to you, you're in trouble. Thirdly, you're in trouble when God's word is replaced by the charisma of false teachers. I mean, charisma is a powerful thing, isn't it? Don't you think so? I mean, who wants a preacher that's mamsy-pamsy, who doesn't thunder forth the truth? You want that, and you should. But there are so many, so many demagogues that are out there that are that are leading people astray through their charisma because you're not steeped in the truth of God. I mean, look at verse 11. This is powerful stuff here. Don't miss it. Look at what these false prophets, look at Zedekiah said. Thus says the what? The Lord. That's the Hebrew word Yahweh. And it's all over this text. Zedekiah and the 400 false prophets were not outright pagan prophets, but they were posing as if they were the Lord's. False prophets have no problem invoking the name of the Lord in their quest to deceive. And the landscape is filled with man-centered men and women who use the Lord's name and lead millions astray. And here you say, well, how do I know? Well, you'll know if you know this for sure. But the other thing is to listen to their message. It's almost always man-centered. It's always about you, your felt need, your personal happiness. You, 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 you. It's just grounded in this earth. Sometime back, my wife and I were at a bed and breakfast, and we knew the proprietor, uh, proprietor of this bed and breakfast, and they were... They were godly people for the most part. And uh, as we're getting ready to leave, I was in the living room. I looked on the coffee table. There was a book of a well-known heretic nobody should be reading or listening to. And she saw me see the book. And so she just very instinctively, here's what she said. I know he's not very solid, but sometimes I just need the encouragement he gives. My heart sunk because what she was unwittingly doing was, was listening to a man who was twisting and torturing the word of God. And by the way, that's exactly how Peter, think about this, as Peter, in his, some, of his last, some of the last words we were ever given from Peter right here. As he's talking about Paul. He says, as Paul does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, God's people said. Yeah, that's true. 
Then watch, Peter says, which the ignorant and the unstable, say the word, twist. That's the Greek word which means to torture. It means to torture. They torture to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So you want to know what these individuals are doing? They are torturing the word of God, but they're using it. And because they're using it and because we're so shallow, we just like little lemmings follow right after them. Their charisma, men and women standing in pulpits, coining phrases, twisting scripture, excusing certain behaviors as cultural change and pulling the God card, card out every once in a while. God spoke to me. Well, what, oh, put your Bible aside. I guess I don't need to read that. And holding crowds mesmerized. I have this much tolerance for them. I went back and forth with a man like this a few years back, several years back now, actually, and, and he had actually asked several questions. I, I could tell he was heretical in his views of salvation, and I answered every question point for point and then gave him some questions, to which he answered none of them. And then he sent me more questions. I said, this is an exercise in futility because you're not, you're not debating in a fair way. If you don't answer my question, this is an exercise. This is, this is a lost cause. So about a year later, he wrote me again, did the same thing, trying to draw me in. I just responded to him. I took a little note card out. I wrote, thank you for your note. My answer to you is found in Acts 13.10. Sign my name. Acts 13.10 says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, how much longer will you pervert the right ways of God? Never heard from him again. Let me tell you something, you're in trouble when God's word is replaced by the charisma of false teachers. Fourthly, you're in trouble when God's word is silenced by the religious majority. I mean, there's 400 of them all saying the same thing. It's got to be true, right? How? <laughs> no, it's not true. How often voices of many trump the voice of truth. And Peter warned us in a word that's rarely used, again, in that second epistle again. That's, this is a word that I, I almost hear nobody referring to. Here's how Peter put it in, in the second verse. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. Notice that takes it to the current hour. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master or the Lord who, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Our world and particularly this fat and sassy country that we live in. Everybody has everything you ever need with tons of disposable income. And I know if that doesn't apply to you, God, you know, forgive me. But it applies to a lot of you who are affluent. You got everything you need. It's all there. And this country is filled with liars who just draw you in. And these liars have many followers. 
Why? Because numbers of followers affirm the one being followed. Right? I mean, how could he be wrong? Look at the size of his church. Look at the massive size of his audience. They choose charisma over character who follow these individuals. And these individuals are those who have lots of charisma, very little character. Christianity Today has just done an expose of Mark Driscoll, who was the rock star of the evangelical world 20 years ago. Funny, witty, incredibly intelligent, and actually preached the word and the gospel of salvation. But in this expose, they say repeatedly, his character never caught up with his charisma. And if you're following, you know, guys who are just out of their diapers, their seminary, you know, diplomas, have, the ink hasn't even dried on them yet. Because, man, they are just crazy cool. And don't get me wrong, God's hand is on young men. I praise God for his hand on young men. But if you're following somebody just out of charisma, you're in trouble. They'll lead you to trouble. One more thing. Sorry, it's not a touchy-feely message, but whatever. You're in trouble when God's word helps you see this world, but not the next one. When this thing just becomes a practicum, when you just practice pragmatic Christianity, and the Bible might as well just be a book of Proverbs, you're in trouble. Especially when the word of God helps you to see only in this world, but not into the next. And boy, did we get a glimpse behind the curtain in this passage, right? How intriguing. This window into heaven where, where Micaiah sees the Lord on his throne and angels and demons. By the way, this passage challenges the notion that demons don't have access to God. Remember the story of Job? First two chapters, here's Satan talking to God up in heaven, having a dialogue. They don't fellowship with God. They have to obey him. Amen? And they are all hellbound, but not all of them are in that place of suffering yet. Fascinatingly, in this passage, God is actually seen listening to their pitches, their ideas. They're throwing at him, and they're, they're only too happy to be allowed because that, no demon does anything without God letting the chain out. They're only too happy to be allowed to bring about Ahab's demise. By the way, if you could see beyond this world into the next, would that change you right now? Not long after this, there's another great prophet by the name of Elisha. He was the, he was the student of Elijah, the electrifying prophet who called down fire. Elisha arguably had just as dynamic a ministry. He's able to see things in advance of them happening and oftentimes would warn the king of Israel what was going on when the king of Syria was planning some attack. And the king of Syria got word of this. He was so mad, he sends an army after Elisha and his servant. And before you know it, here's Elisha and their servant. And his servant. The, the, the king of Syria has surrounded the, the entire city and the servant sees the army and he's freaking out. He's, oh my goodness, my Lord, they're going to kill us. They're going to kill us. And Elisha says, don't worry. Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. 
And then he does something for his servant, because his servant could only see things in this world. Elisha says, open his eyes, Lord, that he may see. And like that, he sees thousands of angelic warriors all around. And of course, they win the battle. Angels. The writer of Hebrews says, are they not ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will be heirs of salvation? Amen? Demons. Highly organized. Ephesians 6, we'll get to that, Lord willing, this next year. Angels, demons, helping, hurting, fighting, fighting one another, fighting you, both for you and against you. That's sobering stuff, isn't it? That's peering into the what's going on beyond your eyes. Look, I'm not saying if you read, believe, meditate, obey, and see the scripture itself as sufficient as it is, and reject coffee cup Christianity, that you know, you're gonna, you'll be able to foresee all your problems and you'll see angels surrounding your house. That's just silly, even though they probably are. I am saying you'll be constantly keen to God and to his big picture in this world, knowing the greater world that is to come. Amen? And so this is Old Testament, cool Old Testament stuff here, but even in the New Testament, Paul said in Ephesians 1, he said, here's my prayer, that God would open the eyes of your hearts. Because if your heart's eyes are open, then you'll see beyond this world. But you're in trouble if God's word only lets you see into this world and not into the next Just the other day, I went golfing. Uh, I'm not a good golfer, okay? In fact, I'm kind of a, I was sort of the, the shame of my, my dad and my brothers, who were all really good golfers, and then there's Pat over here, you know. But I still like golfing. So I went golfing the other day, and I'm not a good golfer, but I had a rare day where I actually played well. Had several pars. And what do you know? If you keep the ball in the fairway, it goes good for you. <laughs> and I did that. Except on one hole, I didn't. I absolutely just annihilated the ball going in the wrong direction. It went way right, down into a gully, in front of a large clump of trees, about 150 yards from the green. And, I, and I'm kind of judging how close I am to the trees. And I'm thinking, if I hit this shot perfectly, I could clear those trees. It would land on the green. It'd be the most awesome thing in the world. But I've tried that a few times. It never goes well for me. And just before I hit it, I heard the voice of my dad in my head. My dad used to say to me, Pat, when you're in trouble, get out of trouble. <laughs> That was his wisdom. <laughs> Pretty good wisdom if you think about it. <laughs> Pat, if you're in trouble, get out of trouble. And I'm like this, looking at those clump of trees, and I went, eh. I chipped it down on the fairway and avoided disaster.
Some of you are in trouble right now. You can keep going the way you're going in the hopes that it'll get better, but you know the odds are against you. You can't just chip out. Listen to the voice of my dad. No, no. Better yet, listen to the voice of Father God. Jesus said, he who hears, listen, who hears God. I'm sorry, he who's of God hears God's words. Have you ever read that? He who is of God hears God's words. Whenever Jesus speaks of hearing, he's implying belief. He's implying commitment. He's implying obedience. He who is of God hears God's words. The problem is the audience he was talking to didn't. They weren't of God. That's why he said, therefore, you do not hear because you're not of God. And that's the problem that some of you have right now. You're not of God. And you can't be of God unless you come to God through the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves getting people out of trouble. Amen? That's what he does. He gets you out of trouble. Your sin, which is holding you down, will send you to hell can be taken away by faith in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. But many of you that are Christians, you're in trouble because of the way you have toyed with this thing. During the worship, I I held it up. I, I don't know if I've ever done that. We sang those songs about the word. I just wanted to hold it up and say, God, thank you for your word. Jesus said, in this world, you will have what? You got enough trouble as it is. Why add to the stuff you already have? The Greek word trouble, by the way, or, or, or uh, tribulation in John 16, is the word thalipsis. It literally means pressure, and it refers to a narrow place. In fact, it literally means to be hemmed in without options. You're looking at that clump of trees and thinking, I can get over it, but you ain't going to get over it. Jesus will do more than help you chip out. He'll forgive your sins. He'll put you on the right track. And then you can say, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The reason? Because it is. Is it? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glory of, the, of your word. You have spoken to us. And yet, Lord, we repent today because we have not approached your word with the reverence that we ought to. We, haven't, we, haven't, we don't tremble before it as we ought. We're looking at it. We go to it as an afterthought rather than a forethought. And it incites conviction, yes, but sometimes anger in us when the messenger comes and speaks truth to us. Lord, some of us here are just caught up with, with wildly impressive men and women out there teaching and preaching and using your word, but not really teaching the whole counsel of God. And if that's you, dear friend, repent of that. 
Seek the Lord in his word. Know that he loves you and wants to bring you closer to himself as you confess that all scripture is inspired by the living God. And it is profitable for all the things that it is. And it will complete you. It is sufficient. God, we love you. And we love you for giving us your revelation, the word of God, both in flesh, in the person of Jesus, and inscripted in the Bible itself. We glorify you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand.